A couple weeks ago, I came across a flyer at a coffee shop for a 5K and a half marathon. And it actually piqued my interest, surprisingly enough. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as a true runner, but I do run on, on occasion to stay somewhat in a shape and stay alive somewhat. But for some reason, seeing this flyer that morning, it brought about the strangest urge to possibly try not the 5K, but the half marathon. Yes, very, very strange, I know. Uh, I've run a 5K before. Uh, I tried. I actually lived through it. But I've never had the urge to do anything beyond a 5K. I know some here uh, this morning have done a 5K. They've done a half marathon. They've even done a marathon. But for me, that has never sounded appealing. That morning it did until I noticed the date of the run. It was somewhere at the beginning of August, four weeks away, four or five weeks away. And so when I quickly Googled training for a half marathon, all I found was 10 or 12 week training sessions. I couldn't find the, the four week because all that entailed was killing yourself for four weeks. So I decided pretty quickly that that urge was uh, not going to take place. It wasn't going to be a reality. But some of you, you have the discipline that it takes to train for a half marathon. In fact, some of you actually enjoy the training, oddly enough. But for those of us who are normal, training is not all that appealing, is it? Uh, training for a marathon, training in sports is not all that appealing to us. But the truth is, whether we like it or not, Training is crucial. Whether it's for an upcoming race or an athletic event, training is vital to the success in that event. Well, over the last two weeks, as we've studied Titus chapter 2, Paul grabs the attention of both Titus and the church in Crete, and he calls both men and women to adorn the teaching of God our Savior. And to do that through lives of self-control, a call that was crucial in that day, just as crucial as it is in our culture today. For as we've seen throughout this letter, behavior should match beliefs. And so this morning, as we come to the end of chapter 2, in verses 11 through 14, we're coming to the heart of Paul's letter to Titus, this young church planter on the island of Crete. It's here that Paul grounds his call for godliness at the first half of this book. He grounds it in the very nature of the gospel itself. And he reveals to us just how it is that the gospel trains us. How it trains us in this faith-filled life. So in laying this gospel basis for the moral living he, that he's encouraged throughout the first chapter and half of this book, Paul moves from duty to doctrine. From mundane duties that we might see to a sublime doctrines, as John Stott notes. While his normal method in books like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians is to begin with doctrine and then, with a mighty therefore, go into explaining its ethical implications, here he reverses his order and he begins with these duties, these commands. And now, at the beginning of verse 11, we see a ringing for or because. And he lays the gospel foundation for these actions. He shows us the source of the faith-filled life. And so what we learn from this passage this morning, the big idea is that a faith-filled church is a gospel-centered church. 
And a faith-filled man or woman is a gospel-centered man and woman. For you see, Paul understood the universal danger in forgetting what is most important. He understood the propensity of our hearts to forget what is central. And so for Paul, being gospel-centered wasn't just some catchy phrase. It wasn't a way to market this newfound social group called the church. For Paul, and really for all the New Testament authors, this was the very core of the Christian life. Since the gospel had so radically changed hearts and lives, the very thought of it being replaced or removed as the center of the church was unimaginable. And again, as we studied at the end of chapter 1, that's why he was so upset with these false teachers, this circumcision group. They were replacing the center of the church. Unfortunately, many churches today do not have the same conviction that Paul has. The truth is, as one author notes, all around us we see Christians relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. This is seen in churches who are infatuated with the newest marketing schemes and the latest attractional programs. Even more sadly, it's seen, as we even heard and saw this week, in church leaders like Eugene Peterson who walks away from biblical teaching. Peterson walking away from the biblical teaching on the nature of marriage as a one flesh union between a man and a woman. Paul, though, as we'll see here in this passage, is passionately committed to not letting the gospel be fumbled. That the gospel would remain center in the church. And so he writes in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness, and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And this is God's word for us this morning, so let us thank him for it. Father, this morning we are are grateful for your word. We've read it already this morning, but now as we open it and we study it, we ask that it would do its work of changing our hearts and stirring our affection for you. That it would guard us from a drift or a possible fumbling of the greatest news in all the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we might say as a church that We are gospel-centered, but we still have the propensity in our hearts to drift away. To drift away even to good things, but in doing so, to neglect what is core for us. What Paul shows us here, the grace of God has appeared. So stir us once again through your word. Change our hearts for your glory and our enjoyment of you. In your name. Amen. In these verses, Paul explains just how we make the gospel attractive. How it's even possible. He tells us that the gospel of grace makes it possible. He lays out the nature of God's grace as he describes four things. That grace saves, grace trains, grace creates within us a blessed hope, or grace waits, 
And how grace redeems. And so what I believe God wants to call us as a church to this morning is to center our lives on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To live truly gospel-centered lives by allowing the gospel to go to work in our hearts and in our lives and in the life of our church. As Mike Bulmore has so profoundly noted, a quote that I've read here many years ago, but still good for us to be reminded today, a local church is healthy to to the degree that, one, its pastors and teachers are able accurately, effectively, and broadly to bring the gospel to bear specifically into the real lives of the people, and two, that its people, the church, has a deep personal understanding of and a deep personal appreciation for the gospel so as to be able to live in the good of the gospel daily. In other words, the gospel, the grace of God, this good news of Jesus Christ's life, his death and resurrection, and coming return, must not just maintain a a stated center, even on our our logo saying a gospel-centered community. It must not just remain as stated. No, it must work itself out. It must function. It must do work for us at the very core of who we are as individuals and as a church. And so as we dive into this study on the nature of God's grace this morning, what we need to ask ourselves each individually and then as a church is this. Do we have gospel grace functioning as our center? Or is it just something we say? Is it just a catchy phrase for us? Are we truly gospel-centered? First of all, this morning, Paul explains that we should be, that we see that grace saves. And this should be obvious to us, but it's often assumed. Notice how verse 11 begins. It begins with a simple word, for. A word that connects this passage with the preceding verses. It ties again that weighty doctrine of verses 1, of verses here 11 through 14 to the practical instruction of verses 1 and 10. This means that Paul's argument For living a life of self-control, men, living lives of seriousness, worthy of respect. For women, being reverent in behavior, not slanders, teaching what is good. That that flows from the design of redemption. That God's command for our behavior as believers is rooted and grounded in His grace. It's easy for us to skip over just that three-letter word, for, isn't it? But these words are so important. This small word connects our conduct to the gospel. The gospel that we have been transformed by. Tim Keller points out that Paul is showing us here that we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life. We don't move on to something more advanced. The gospel is not just the first step in a stairway of truth, but rather it's more like a hub in the middle of a wheel of truth. And so having studied those previous verses and observed what the faith-filled life of a man and woman looks like and how it makes the gospel attractive, Paul now shows us that this is only possible because of one thing. It's not possible because you pulled up your bootstraps and you're working really hard to be self-controlled. No, it's possible because what God has first done in us. Belief and behavior continue to be woven in this beautiful tapestry here of biblical teaching. For, Paul continues, the grace of God has appeared. See, what Paul believes is essential to the health of these churches on Crete 
And in fact, to our church is this, the grace of God appearing. And where does this take place? It takes place in Christ, the word that becomes flesh and dwells among us, John writes. And we've observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus is grace incarnate. Paul's use of grace here is a one-word summary of God's saving act in Christ. In other words, the grace of God, simply put, is the gospel. So Paul essentially is saying here, grace has appeared. The gospel has come, and what has it done? It's brought salvation to all people. Now that next phrase, to all people, could carry us into a long theological discussion, bringing salvation to all people. A discussion that would take us into the deep end of the theological pool. But for time's sake this morning, I want to just briefly note a couple things about this phrase. First of all, Paul is not saying here in this phrase that all people will be saved. Some argue that to be the case. But that would contradict and even deny the whole of Scripture's teaching. The Scripture's teaching on the justice of God and His judgment on sin in eternal punishment in hell. So what is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that salvation has been offered to all people in Christ. In other words, as David Platt explains, this phrase, has appeared for all people, means God has made this salvation known in a way previously unknown. And he's made it known for the entire world to see. The perfect atonement of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, made all men savable. Every sin of every person has its answer now in the grace of God appearing in Christ. No nation, no tongue, no people or persons is excluded from this saving work. Again, Paul showed us this at the beginning of chapter 2, saying women, men, even slaves, now the grace of God has appeared to all people. And those who perish in, their, in the horrors of hell must walk over this truth. Of a blood-stained cross that bears their name. So you see, by His very nature, our God is a saving God. He's a, his gracious gift of salvation has appeared for all. And so that's why we could sing this morning, Hallelujah! What a Savior! But this also means that all are accountable. All are accountable to respond to this good news. Paul explains this truth in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1 when he writes, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And since what can be known about God is evident among them, so they know it, they've seen it, because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, Paul says, since the creation of the world, as a result, people are without excuse. For though they know God, he continues, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So although we knew God's just sentence... That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, and we not only took part in those acts, 
But we even applauded others who practiced them. Therefore, everyone, Paul concludes in Romans 2, is without excuse. All are accountable. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you've not yet turned in faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ as your Lord, the sad reality is this. You, too, are without excuse. But just like every one of us in this room, we all are accountable But friend, if you are sitting here without repentance and without faith in Christ, hear the good news that as Paul continues in chapter 3 when he writes, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. The grace of God has appeared through the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified freely, Paul says, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation has appeared In Christ. And it's being offered to you today, friend. You are accountable to either believe or reject His grace. There's no other options on the table. Either you believe or you reject. And so, friend, again, if you're here this morning and have not done this, I'd urge and plead you to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. The one who who only can save your soul. The one who only gives hope. So by nature, our God is a saving God. And that should do something in our hearts when we hear this truth. It should stir our affections. The nature of gospel grace is that it saves, and it would save someone just like you and like me. Now many of us have grown up believing that that's all the gospel does. It just saves So then we move on to something bigger and better. But notice, as Paul continues in this passage, what he says. He he shows us that the gospel is much bigger than just our conversion experience. He shows that the the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. And so that grace not only saves, but, verse 12, it trains. It instructs us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And as verse 12 shows us, it now it goes to work in our lives. Here Paul personifies the grace of God. Grace has been the Savior, and now it becomes the great teacher. Grace, our trainer. In an 1880 book that was published in Britain entitled The School of Grace, subtitled Expository Thoughts on Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, the author wrote these words. Grace not only saves, but it undertakes our training. So all Christians become learners in this school of grace. Grace bases all her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made. And it finds all her teaching power in those mighty memories. You see, grace trains us in the way and by the power of the gospel. Now, as I alluded to earlier... Most of us absolutely hate training. Others love it. They're weird. I can remember in high school and in college having to train for football. uh, Having to go out to football practice every single day, and I absolutely hated it, as Chris can attest. I hated going to practice. I wanted the action in the game, but practice, I hated One of the most vivid memories I have from football practice in high school actually has to do with Earl and Becky's uh, nephew, Josh Redberg. 
Uh, he was a senior when I was a freshman. He's one of the pastors at Redeemer Community Church, our mother church. Uh, and in fact, I can still remember like it was yesterday, Josh's actions toward us, the freshmen. You see, there was this drill that the seniors, specifically Josh and one other guy, they loved, and it was called Bull in the Ring. Sounds a lot of fun, right? Well, let's just fast forward. Most days when that happened, I would go home crying to my parents as a freshman, (laughs) saying, I never want to go back. Don't make me go back to high school. Uh, I'll I'll go somewhere. Homeschool me. Send me somewhere else. I don't want to go back. Because bull in the ring was this. Usually they would pick the scrawniest freshman, and at that time, that was me, a 125, 145, something like that, uh, and placing that individual in the middle of a ring of football players. Uh, Most of the upperclassmen were in this ring. And then Josh would run around the outside, and he would either tap one of the guys on the shoulders or call out his name, and then it was his chance to run inside the circle and just lay into us as freshmen. And what we were supposed to do is always stay on our feet, looking around, where, where is this, this hit going to come from? Who's going to lay the smack down on us? And so as they came, they were supposed to be training us for action in the game, but I hated it. I hated that training because uh, what happened was I would lay flat on the ground and get up again, and they'd hit me again. And every once in a while, I would actually stay up, uh, not, not too often. Uh, if, I, if I got up, then I was done. Somebody else could come in and be tortured for the rest. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, though I hated that, it did train us for the game. Uh, it helped us keep our feet uh, when we w- didn't know when a hit was going to come. And so it was for our good as football players. Uh, And especially Josh would like me to remember that it was for our good. But what Paul says here is that the gospel of grace, it trains us. It goes to work in our lives. And though we might not like it, it does its good work in us. It's always necessary. And so for that reason, we can and we should welcome the grace training us. Because we know that he who started a good work in us will carry it out onto completion until the day of Christ. And so, how does grace train us? Well, verse 12 tells us, it trains us negatively to deny godlessness. Or to reject, literally say no to what is opposed to God. So it trains us to deny what is godless, and also to deny worldly lust, to reject the fleshly passions that are at war within us, James tells us. So grace trains us to renounce our old life and live in a new life, to turn from ungodliness to godliness, from self-centeredness to self-control, from the world's devious ways to a fair dealing with one another. When our hearts are so satisfied with grace, then that work of denying ungodlessness or godlessness and worldly lusts becomes joyful, becomes faith-filled work. You see, the gospel should create within us such a delight in God as our supreme treasure that we have distaste for the things of the world. As the hymn writer writes, when we turn our eyes on Jesus, we look in his wonderful face, the things of this earth, the godlessness, the worldly lust, they grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. 
So grace trains us to deny godlessness, deny worldly lust, but also positively, it trains us to live sensible. Again, Paul has talked about that in verse, verse 2, about living a sensible life, men. And here, Paul tells us grace trains us to do that, to express the self-restraint we need to practice the good things of life, to live self-controlled. It also trains us to live righteous, upright in our conduct toward others, doing to them what we would have them do to us. It, lives, it creates and trains within us to live in a godly way, to regard God's glory and His will in every aspect as more important than our glory and our will. This is what the gospel creates in God's redeemed people, those who are saved. And He, he creates that, again we see at the end of verse 12, in the present age. Again, if we remember the culture that Paul is writing into, the present age was filled with liars, beasts, and gluttons. Paul says grace will put you into this present age and it will train you to deny the things of this world and to live righteous in godliness. In godliness, His grace breaks the power of canceled sin. And it breaks it in our lives today. And so brothers and sisters, are we soaking our minds and our lives in this grace? Are we welcoming the training work of God's grace in our life? Since we are now dead to sin and alive to righteousness, the truth is this training is a, a joy for us because we've received power for today. And as Paul now continues on, we have a hope for the future. Paul moves next to show us that grace not only saves and trains, but it creates in us a waiting and a joyful waiting. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, instructing us. And he says, while we wait, verse 13, for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. While we go about the training in the present day, whether it's negatively or positively, we do so with the hope of grace in the future. As we noted a couple weeks ago in chapter 1 and verse 2, this blessed hope is not a wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream or even a possible likelihood. No, this hope is certain. Because it is promised before time began, Paul has told us in verse 2 of chapter 1, by the God who cannot lie. Our hope is firmly established in the promised, never-changing, always truthful word from God. And so our certainty about God enables and motivates our consistency in the present. Notice what Paul is saying here, that the appearing of grace in verse 11 creates within us an eager expectation for the appearing of something else, for the appearing of glory. We see two appearings here, the appearing of grace, but then the appearing of glory here in verse 13. And both of these speak of the same person of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. We know who we are waiting for. Turn with me to 1 John 3, for John echoes what Paul is talking about here. 1 John chapter 3 John writes these words, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know, and there's a certainty in those words, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope, 
in him purifies himself just as he is pure. They welcome the training nature of grace because we have this grace and the hope of Christ's return. This is the magnificent effect of the gospel in our lives. Both John and Paul are saying that the gospel creates, us, creates within us a hope-filled waiting, a waiting of earnest anticipation. We don't dread the final day. We don't fear the final day. We long for it because we've been acted upon by God. We are now His children, and so we long for our daddy to come home. Some of you experience that on a daily basis when you come home from work and your children come running up to you. They're so excited to see you. And hopefully, hopefully your wife does that too. But at least your children run to you. If you've ever been to the airport terminal to pick up someone, you know the kind of anticipation Paul is talking about. You see that in the faces of people as they long and wait for their family members to walk off that plane into their view. And so there's this joyful longing that they would be reconnected with their loved ones. While living in North Carolina, there were several times when our parents and family members would come and they'd fly into RDU. And we would wait there at the end of the terminal, wait for them to walk down. And one specific time, Megan's mother was coming and she was flying in late one night. It was like midnight when she finally arrived. But because our kids wanted to see Grandma, we woke them up and took them in the van to RDU We stood there, them in their PJs, and everybody looking around at these kids at midnight in their PJs. They were there just eagerly anticipating, longing for Grandma to walk through through those doors down uh, the terminal. And when they did, not even the security guards could stop them. Uh, They weren't supposed to cross that line, but they did. Uh, And the security guards just just laughed at them. Uh, There were squeals of joy, excitement filling the airport because... Someone that they longed for had arrived. The eagerly anticipated arrival. Is that our posture towards Christ's return? Do we eagerly anticipate our Father's appearing? His appearing in glory? His past and present grace gives us hope for His future grace. And so with a constant gaze and experience of His grace today, are our eyes fixed heavenward? with a certainty of His coming? Are we joy-filled, faith-filled in this hope? So far, Paul shows us that grace saves, it trains, and it waits, but at the end of verse 14, he concludes by showing us that grace redeems. Here at the end of verse 14, he says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us, cleanse for Himself a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. But in doing so, as he shows us that grace redeems, he not only continues to anchor his call for godliness in Christ's work, but he also shows us that Christ's work changes us. It changes our identity through this grace. While at first glance, this verse may just seem like Paul's repeating himself, what Paul is actually doing here is he's rotating the gospel diamond He's showing us the beautiful and magnificent facets of this diamond. Showing us that it not only saves, but now here it it redeems. It changes our identity. He reveals that through Christ's sacrificial giving of himself on the cross for us, that that was for the display of his glory in a people. It was to cleanse a people, what does he say, for his own possession. For his own possession, who are now eager to do good works. 
what Paul is explaining here is that the fulfillment of the promised new covenant in the Old Testament is now taking place. When Ezekiel says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and, will be, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is what God's grace does within us. His grace takes us out of the pig pen. Sin has made us guilty and dirty, but grace makes us innocent and clean. And grace not only wipes the slate of sin clean, but it also gives us a new slate, a new identity. Notice down there, the end of verse 14, we are now a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. Again, this is a people known for being liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And now he says, because of God's grace, they can be known as a people for his own possession who are eager to do good works. That's an amazing exchange, amazing change in our identity. Peter shares the same thing when he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, our good works are a natural outgrowth of His work in us by His grace. What ultimately makes us holy is not our willpower. It's not guilt or fear. It's not an inspiring message, but a deep appreciation and a deep apprehension of the grace of God in Christ. So are we growing in the grace of God? Growing in our understanding that grace saves, grace trains us, it creates within us this hope-filled waiting, and it redeems us. It's changed us from lawless to now zealous, eager to do good works. When El Nino's rain bombarded Southern California one winter, the potential dangers of a mudslide became reality for one family. While the family was still in their homes, a wave of mud tore through the house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out in the night. The parents frantically began searching throughout the darkness for the child, tromping through the mire that had descended upon the whole neighborhood. They searched, they dug, they called for their child throughout the long night without results. But when morning came, a rescuer, himself covered in mud, came to the parents with a mud cake bundle in his arms. The baby, filthy, covered in mud, but alive. You can guess what the mother did. She clung to the child despite the filth and then washed the mud away. See, that's exactly what grace does. For when the filth of our sins were sweeping us in our helpless state to eternal death, God covered himself in the muck of this world to rescue us and then embraces us despite our filth and he cleanses us. He removes the mud. Oh, may we be a church rooted in the past grace of Christ's work on the cross, submitted to the present grace of the Spirit's training within us, and expectant of the promised grace of His return. It's God, with that ringing in our ears now, 
the glories of your grace. We would ask that you would do your work within us, even now of training us, of revealing where we have strayed, where we have maybe fumbled this good news, and grabbed a hold of something else. God, reveal that in our hearts and stir within us by your word, faith-filled actions, faith-filled hope, eager anticipation for your return and joyful that you're doing work in us right now. Do that for your fame here among us, but also among the people that we live in, our neighbors, co-workers. Be famous in your grace, in your name. Amen.